0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. As you sit down with your family this holiday, turning off the 24 7 flow of low grade pablum on cable news may be the first step toward an enjoyable day. But even if you can't get that small concession, take this cold comfort from Anthony Comegna. He argues that the value of quality news gathering and reporting, whatever comfort it might give us, is a lot less important to the cause of self-government than we might hope. As we record this, Jim Acosta, a uh, a newsman from CNN, who I guess is their chief White House correspondent, was recently prohibited from uh, White House press briefings, a place that is well known to produce very little of value for the news-consuming public. And uh, so now this fight is over that. Before... Uh, The fight with respect to White House press was about uh, Sarah Sanders publishing a video from a guy who works very closely with uh, conspiracy monger, Alex Jones, and why that's outrageous and and terrible. And it, it got me to thinking, well, there are a lot of different ways that people are going to interpret this, I think largely meaningless event. If you care about like quality news coverage, one guy no longer being in the room is not that important. And news gathering that is consequential probably doesn't come out of White House press briefings. But the way people actually consume their news is so uh, separate now. You can choose your team and then get your news coverage, And uh, at least with respect to television. And I guess that's true of newspapers to some extent as well, and websites. So my question to you is: What parallels do we have going back, you know, 150 years? To say, well, this separation—the fact that people are not are are able to broadly not consume the same sets of facts—what uh, does that give us? And was there a time in history when we can point to and say this this kind of information uh, dissemination? maybe posed a problem, or maybe it was a very good thing.
1: Well, yeah, don't you remember the great days of White House press briefings when the Bush administration could come out and lie to the entire country and everybody would dutifully go, oh, okay, great, okay. That's what the White House says moving on. And nothing ever exciting happened at a press briefing. That was great. Great things happened from that kind of world. Yeah. No, I'm not, I never get, like, singularly depressed by things like this that we're in this kind of a culture because really there are plenty of parallels to draw on in the past. And I mean, in in some sense, that should be discomforting because the past turned out so badly too. (laughs) You know, it doesn't spell great things for the present, uh, but hey, maybe people find some sort of comfort in the idea that we, you know, we have had to deal with things like this before and the world wasn't great for it, But it also didn't fall apart. And people did sort of learn how to deal with it. But on this specific point of uh, how people get their news,
0: I mean, the the historian, uh, you know, I spoke with Michael Duma recently about uh, history and how it's sort of a a prism into which we're we're trying to make, draw out the most relevant things to uh, tell a a story, a a substantial and real story about the past. Um, And... How people get news and how they are informed and the actions that they take based upon what they've learned are are, are pretty important today. and uh, with you know the way people consume social media, how they're strongly encouraged to to look at and engage with things that they probably already agree with, and you know how we choose our friends and that sort of thing. When we go back in time, it seems much clunkier in terms of uh, our ability to uh, sequester ourselves into these kinds of echo chambers, these reality tunnels, if you will.
1: Yeah. So my my field of specialty is the Jacksonian period, which is incredible. Um, I just find it the the most deeply fascinating period of American history because absolutely everything about life changed from one end of the period to the other. In about 30 years, give or take, practically everything about normal life changed. And it was in ways that people could not possibly have predicted at the beginning of the period. So at the end of the War of 1812, it could take you weeks to get from New York to New Orleans. It could take you more than a month to get from Pittsburgh to New Orleans by way of the Mississippi River. Uh, And then you would have to travel on land by foot over old Indian trails to get back north. and by the end of this 30-year period people have the ability to transmit their thoughts electronically instantaneously across thousands of miles of space and the entire of the entirety of human existence is transformed by that fact and everything seemed possible to these people now the whole world of of dazzling uh, imagination that had existed in fiction beforehand suddenly became very real possibilities. And, you know, people were using electricity to reanimate corpses. And they thought that uh, electricity and telegraphy could be a way to communicate with the dead because they existed somewhere still in the world of energy and electromagnetism, and you know the new Victorian science opened up all sorts of incredible, uh, imaginative pathways for people and the sort of future they thought they could make for themselves. Now, some of the the other besides telegraphy, some of the other amazing inventions. For revolutionizing communications, were were more humble things like steam-driven presses to print newspapers, that could now make uh, newspapers that cost pennies. So there were penny papers that were the first, you know, very widely available uh, newspapers that printed tens of thousands of copies and had very wide circulations. Um, And they started popping up in the 1830s and spread everywhere in the 1840s. And, you know, more people than literally ever before were reading and consuming news like uh, it had never existed in any country. Um, And, you know, add to that railroads and canals, and people are moving everywhere much faster, and the, the nation sort of shrinks dramatically. Uh, and it, you see very clearly in the record over this 20, 30-year period, people become intensely more interested in the affairs of their neighbors, not their immediate neighbors, mind you, but anybody they might consider a neighbor, so everybody in the country is a potential neighbor when you can now travel to them within a day or a couple days time. And you can talk to them instantaneously by telegraph. Or you can get the news from their newspaper wired to yours so you can find out everything that's going on in the country that might possibly be of interest to you and you can get involved in it. And that really is the, the big transformative thing that I see from mass communications in the period is this new sense that now very distant people who otherwise would not have much to do with my life, well, I can now have an awful lot to do with theirs and vice versa. Uh,
0: it, it reminds me, there's a, there's a moment on the show Deadwood when uh, uh, Earl Brown, uh, who plays Dan Doherty on Deadwood, he's sitting there just going through a newspaper and he just sort of slams it down and says, I wish they had more news of the baseball <laughs> and, you know, there are any any number of things that people would be more or relatively more or less concerned with uh, given their station in life, given their uh, uh, area of work and things like that. But in terms of penny papers and uh, what counts as influence at the time, is there some clear shakeout of, well, these sort of things were temporary. And they were less than credible, and so they died. That's what I'm looking. That's what I'm hoping for. That there's a story. There's a story in there about, well, nobody trusted this paper, and it they routinely lied, and so it went away. That's please
1: tell me that story uh, existed somehow. That story happened constantly. So much, in fact, that that's the normal. That was the normal process. So every part, every paper was a party paper. Unless it was just simply a commercial paper, some sort of commercial advertiser and you know price bulletin, um, every paper was a party paper that ran its candidates on the masthead, and they got party patronage to do it. These the, the journalists were not properly speaking reporters. Okay, that's a, that's a very modern invention basically by people who want to lie to you about how objective they're being in the media. That's ridiculous. People of the Jacksonian period had no pretensions to objectivity. What was the point? They're in a democracy here. This is a battle for power in the country, right, to protect freedom from Whiggish slavery or whatever it might be, um, to protect liberty and republicanism from the slave power. You know, they made no pretensions to objectivity. They were citizens involved in a battle for their liberty. Against powers who would corrupt it and take it from them, everybody took that very seriously as a charge. This was not a some historical mythology they told themselves about who they are, and then they you know uh, go look at cat videos on YouTube. They lived that, um, and it really meant something to them. They didn't they didn't tell themselves fables about that. So there were all sorts of upstart short-lived campaign papers whose only purpose was to make derogatory songs about Henry Clay. Right? And then they and then they shut down after eight weeks. Uh, there were small town papers who wanted to be the opposition paper and it turns out there wasn't enough opposition there. Um, there were papers who wanted to agitate specific issues and do it in a specific way because of the campaign season. And sometimes they made it to, you know, through that and they found a base and audience big enough to keep going. Uh, but most of the time they folded because their limited mission was accomplished. You know, especially bad examples of newspapers or journalism and dishonest people really did not necessarily stick around for long because they were also built into the process. They had a place within the overall uh, uh, media, right? And, And because people were not being... Uh, making pretensions to objectivity and labeling other people as mere partisan hacks or liars or whatever. Everybody was in the same boat of either declaring your allegiances outright or uh, you'd be suspected of hiding them.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I guess is a bright spot in what I think is otherwise a vast wasteland uh, known as cable news is the fact that there is, very, there is a declining level of pretense. I mean, you have Fox News that allows one of their more popular evening TV hosts step on stage with the President of the United States to promote uh, Republicans for political office. It seems like we're, you know, if, we ha- if it's not already dead completely, fast approaching a time in which that is no longer the case, that there is not this pretense to objectivity.
1: Yeah, so far as it goes, I suppose that's a good thing. Now, you know, I often hear at least from from my libertarian leaning friends that um, this is one thing they appreciate about Trump's influence, that he's busted through the media in so many ways and PC culture and things that he's really shaken things up. And, you know, people are being more refreshingly honest now. And uh, I mean, okay. So let's say uh, someone listening is sitting
0: down with their uncle. And uh, it's Thanksgiving, and their uncle has drank from the fire hose of MSNBC or CNN or Fox News to the exclusion of the others. What should that listener tell them if they want to get into a spirited, lively discussion about the quality of information that uh, he's being
1: dealt? Ah, uh, you know, I think that's a that's a little bit of a tricky question for me to answer because. It's not, I I don't see the problem as one of like qu- quality of information. There's plenty of quality information out there. I, I mean, most people, I guess, don't find themselves to it or they don't bother uh, accumulating a variety of different sources and information. They don't really spend much time challenging their own uh, preconceived notions or their established views. I'm kind of used to that, To to like... And i I doubt that'll much change, partly because you only have time for so much. And you know, if you find a good place that you trust to get your news, i I don't see people being convinced by a Thanksgiving conversation, certainly, to go out and change the way they do things. But the more to me, the more significant problem is this this whole underlying notion that um, we're engaged in self-government here. Like by becoming an informed citizen, by going out and voting, by engaging in debates about ongoing uh, uh, political affairs or whatever else, that's part of your duty as a citizen in a democratic republic. Um, that's part of self-government. That is not true. And I think like we all need to, to face up to the idea that we're not trying to govern ourselves. We're trying to govern everybody else. So that's really the ultimate pretense that that sticks around no matter what news outlet people go to. They all are wrapped up in this idea that they are an essential part of democracy and republicanism um, and as long as people are informed by consuming good media, they will be able to make good decisions to to govern themselves. And. That is still a lie. We're not trying to govern ourselves. We're trying to govern everybody else. We're not setting rules for our own personal behavior because we think those are good general rules to follow generally speaking, none of us want to follow the rules that are set supposedly by ourselves. We only get really concerned when we think somebody's going to be interfering with our interests or we want to stop people from doing X, Y, or Z. Um, and it's it's not actually about setting up rules that I know I'm going to follow because I'm a responsible citizen and I just think that these are good ideas for everybody else to follow. It's It's a the vast majority of people it seems to me go out and vote because they're angry at their fellow human beings they want to control their behavior uh there's some sort of tribalistic elements going on and it really doesn't matter what media you consume my god there are d- much deeper myths and problems here that involve you know overturning hundreds of years of of established history and you know preconceived wisdom about what we're up to um, you know, I recently did an interview for Liberty Chronicles with an author uh, who writes about a man named Stephen Hopkins. Hopkins was on the Third Supply going to Virginia in the early Jamestown years. I think 1609 was when he, he got on board the ship called the Sea Venture, which was leading the third supply. Hopkins was just a sort of middling class person, not very wealthy, not very educated, but he could read and write. He worked for the church to some small degree as a clerk. And he goes on the third supply as a as a minister's clerk. And the Sea Venture is the flagship of this, this uh, resupply mission to Jamestown. It gets smashed apart by a hurricane and miraculously everybody survives they make it to bermuda the rest of the convoy goes on to virginia thinking that the sea venture is just lost at sea forever virginia is a disaster of course and nobody in the working class wants to be there because it's basically a, a prison camp hopkins decides to lead a rebellion on bermuda to set up a colony of maroons and castaways there They said the charter for Virginia that bound us to the company is null and void since we crashed on Bermuda. It's time for us to build our own society here fresh by the consent of the governed because here we are all together on the beach agreeing to govern ourselves. Well, the Admiral and the governor uh, quash all of those rebellions pretty handily and they uh, use terrorism to get ships rebuilt and they go back to Virginia. Stephen Hopkins, about 20 years later, uh, is probably the author of the Mayflower Compact and one of the prime signatories to it. His idea from the time of Bermuda, 30 years before Hobbes, 40 years or so before John Locke, was real consent in government real government built from the bottom up where we actually do govern ourselves. I mean, he wasn't reading any kind of penny presses, party presses. He didn't have telegraphy. He just had the right idea that people actually can govern themselves if if the powerful leave them to it.
0: Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. You can rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at KetoPodcast.